0: This is the business of sports. Let's talk Super Bowl and Fox Sports. Guaranteed money isn't necessarily guaranteed. One Major League Soccer owner is leading a $50 million investment. The
1: blurring of the lines between sports team owners and the sports gambling space.
0: Michael Barr. How high can these valuations go? Evan Novi Williams. Off the field, the NBA has never been buzzier. And the leaders in the sports industry. Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred.
1: Heidi O'Neill is president of Direct to Consumer at Nike.
0: And then the race car driver Helio Castroneves. Jared Smith, president of Ticketmaster. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio.
2: Hello, I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Jason Kelly.
1: And I'm Eben Novi williams Every week at this time, plus Mondays and Wednesdays, we explore the big money issues in the world of sports.
0: Today we sit down with Jamie Regal, CEO of Formula E, the all-electric motor championship that is straight ahead on the Bloomberg Business of Sports show. But first, let's look at some of the top stories for the week. And hey, fellas, we could have some baseball, maybe. Let's cross our fingers. Evan.
1: Yeah, guys, I think we're going to talk more about you know more all, all these sports next week. But we're starting to kind of see the ice thaw, I think, a little bit. In in major professional sports, Major League Baseball, as you said, Michael, it sounds like is preparing to send a a document to the, the union, essentially saying, here's what we think it could look like to restart. They're not the only ones preparing those documents. Jason, I think we may be getting a little bit closer to maybe a little more clarity about how these leagues may want to move forward later in the summer.
2: Well, and I think the key phrase there is may want to. I mean, what it actually turns out to be, I think, is still very much up in the air. You know, reading into this story, I really felt like, okay, empty stadiums, check. But home stadiums and teams traveling and 30 teams like your your head starts to spin a little bit just given maybe we're in this lockdown mode. I have some big questions and a little skepticism here. I have to confess.
1: Michael, is there a part of you that, when you read, you know, stories like this, thinks, okay, you know, I'm excited about about the possibility that 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 maybe we may be getting closer.
0: I'm excited, but then I have to throw some water on myself because of what some of the Cleveland Indian players said. They were doing a video conferencing call about this. And one of the players asked, "Well, what happens if we come back and a player tests positive? Yeah, and that's the million-dollar question. If if that happens, do we shut everything down, or where does it go?
1: Without question, and we'll get a sense of how you know where the players feel about this when the union gets a chance to look at this proposal and you know kind of negotiate it with uh, Major League Baseball, which is again you know the players' voice is not something we've heard all that much. So I'm I'm kind of excited to hear where Major League Baseball's union falls when this when this plan comes out.
2: So, Evan, I do want to add one more thing to this, which is, you know, squaring this plan with what we heard from, obviously, a much smaller league in Premier Lacrosse League this week from mm-hmm. Paul Rabel. He was actually on our Bloomberg Businessweek show and walked us through it. You can see that on our podcast. Mm-hmm. But in any case, uh, you know, one of the things they're going through is unbelievably extensive testing, a quarantined two-week tournament. I mean, extreme medical measures and i'm just trying to figure out like i guess the model is somewhere in between but i'm i'm remain befuddled
0: (laughs) agreed (laughs) well it's it's something you said jason and you're right and i'm sure paul and and mike gave this speech to every team member on in lacrosse and i'm sure major league baseball is going to do it too all it's going to take is one knucklehead To, to go out and I'm going to go party and then get this virus and then the whole thing is shut down. There's way more now than just, oh, I got to go sneak off and go party. It's like, this is strict stuff. You got to stay with it. Uh, next up, Peloton. <laughs> I remember when this first came out with Peloton and they had these expensive stationary bikes and the critics were like, now who in the world is going to pay for this bike? And then the, the video conferencing part of it where you exercise, well, Peloton is now saying because they have had a <laughs> quarterly revenue that soared 66% and the digital subscribers jumped 64%. And part of that is because, well, a lot of it is because a lot of people are inside because of the coronavirus.
1: Yeah, I want Jason to weigh in kind of immediately on this, since Jason, you literally wrote the book on the 21st century uh, fitness (laughs) industry. Um, Obviously, things are good for Peloton right now. I guess the big question, correct me if I'm wrong, is does this sustain itself once people start going back outside?
2: I absolutely think that is the big question. I mean, the good news for them is once you have a bike in your home, and I confess I have a bike in my home, you're not going to send it back. I, I You may mm-hmm. use it a, a little bit less, but it's a hassle to sort of get it out of there. And what we've also seen is a high level of, as they say in the business, sort of stickiness from a business perspective. Hopefully you're wiping your bike down. But, um, <laughs> you know, this is a situation where once you're in this community, people are really into it. Peloton was in the right place at the right time in many ways. They anticipated this trend. Certainly they didn't anticipate a pandemic. They also have a head start. They have a head start on Equinox, which is coming out with a SoulCycle uh, at home bike just now. So there are some smaller players like Mix Fitness who are going after this space as well. But Peloton really has it more or less all to themselves. And the market, for better or worse, has really come to them.
1: I was going to ask you actually about SoulCycle kind of specifically. I'm I'm sure, you know, the, 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 the big popular gyms that, you know, make money, most of their money on in-person classes yeah. are struggling a lot right now. Do you think we start to, but but they have brand equity. Do you think we're going to start to see a, a bigger pivot from from those companies towards maybe more at-home measures?
2: Absolutely. And I think Equinox is the one to watch here for sure. You know, well-known mm. to those of us here on the coast, it's a high-end gym. They've come out with a new app. It's pretty slick. I've tried it out. It's called Varus, And it's definitely meant to be a compliment to the in-studio, in-gym uh, approach. And Equinox, as you know, own Soul Cycle, They own a yoga brand, and they own a meditation brand and a running brand as well. So this sort of platform of, it's almost one entrepreneur in this space. Actually, the president of Mixed Fitness said, you know, you have to take sort of an omni-channel approach. You have to figure out, especially when we get to the next normal, whatever that is, people may want to go to the gym sometimes. They may be at home sometimes. You got to sort of get them where they live and where they work. And so the benefit, as it often is, is going to be to the big brands who can have a bigger offering. I certainly wouldn't count Equinox out here.
1: Michael, you're kind of the you're often the everyman when we talk about media. What are you doing to stay fit? Do do things like this appeal to you in any way or no?
0: I would. I'm I'm sorry, Peloton. I would. I, I do have a stationary <laughs> bike. But okay. it's from the land of the craftsman stationary bikes. It it's it's not a pricey bike. It it is a state, and I get exactly what you were saying, Jason, earlier. It's like, yeah, you go to the gym, you got to wipe the thing down. It's like, what? Who left one on this and whatever? but when you have your own bike, you you can do that. But the thing about Peloton, which is great, is that you can exercise along with going online with right. the exercise service. That that's the huge thing about Peloton, and I got to you know really tip my hat to that it's like but you know it's you know they're, they're doing very well 524.6 million dollars in sales and it grew to over 886,000 connected fitness subscribers so that easily beat the analyst estimates
2: And not for nothing, Eben, but, I mean, this is a situation where this company may end up with a profit this year. They had predicted they were going to have a loss. I mean, that's how big this has been Mm -hmm. uh, for them. And by the numbers, just going back to one thing, one class alone a couple weeks ago, the instructor was at home, Robin Arzon. She's the head instructor. 23,000 people at one time on one class. wow. Jesus. So there you go. That's a community.
0: Uh, I tell you who is a community on his own. The mountain. Uh, oh. <laughs> uh if you, if you haven't, the, he was the actor that was in Game of Thrones. He played the mountain. Now he just set the record for deadlifting over 1,100 pounds in his gym in Iceland. And now he's going to face the guy who used to hold that record, Eddie Hall, in a boxing match in 2021, Evans.
1: Yeah, the, I mean the the details are kind of exactly what you just said. There, there's a rivalry here in the deadlifting community between these two guys um, who apparently don't like each other, and that has spilled over into a seven-figure fight deal for the two of them to bo- box next year in Las Vegas. The, the reason I I, I want to talk about this is because you know I view this kind of through the same lens that I view. What Phil Mickelson and Tiger Woods are doing right now, kind of going outside of maybe the more traditional aspects of their sports, you know, boxing is another one of those sports that lends itself very well to this kind of one on one. You don't have to be, you know, Floyd Mayweather or Manny Pacquiao as long as you're fighting someone who wants to fight you and is maybe on your on your level. I think there is there is a future in in kind of sports and and maybe this pandemic is going to end up accelerating it in which, you know, the 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 event company that pays for a one off event between two people outside of kind of traditional means uh, maybe has a future there. Jason, I'm curious if you agree.
2: I think it's totally true. We were talking about this with our producer, Charlie Vollmer, uh, ahead of this show, and he disagreed with with My assessment, at least, that this felt like a gimmick. And my retort to him was, it's not not a gimmick in some ways, which (laughs) I think is fair. Um, You know, at Bloomberg, we love the superlatives. It's the heaviest boxing match in history, or would be 425 pounds on 362 pounds. Woa, as Carol Masser would say. Um, I do think this could be, I mean, the future, especially when we think about these one-off things. Also, the power of social media, the power of brand, and the ability for people to really generate a huge amount of interest, and the upside is huge. I think here.
1: Yeah, this is. We should say the, the offer done by a, a United Arab Emirates-based company called Core Sports seems like they do a lot in kind of the fight and the and the Strongest Man area so this certainly seems kind of within their their realm of expertise you know michael you and i have talked on the show previously as well about kind of how many other directions you can take ideas like this right if if Roger Federer and, and Rafael Nadal wanted to play a best of seven match in Las Vegas at T-Mobile arena. I would imagine that both the arena and media companies would be, you know, jumping over each other to try to, to try to organize that. Um, I, I think, you know, and I'm curious if there are the ones that jump out to you, if, if, you know, you're a racing guy, if you put, you know, I'm not going to even try to name names, but if you put two <laughs> big NASCAR guys in fancy cars and had a, at a head to head on a closed track, you know, is that I, I, assume that's something that NASCAR folks would want to watch, maybe at the very least just because it's a different kind of experience with, with athletes that they know.
0: Well, yeah, I I, I could see that happening. You could take, uh, in fact, just take some drivers who may have just recently stepped out of the race car. Uh, take Dale Earnhardt Jr. Take yeah. Jeff Gordon. Heck, I'd like to see that. Just put those two out there. That would be a match race that I would tune in to see. You know, it's uh, if you have a product, you can sell it. And you're talking two guys with this match, uh, the Mountain weighing 425 pounds. Good grief. And and Hall (laughs) tips the scales at 362. I I, I mean, and I'm not a small guy, but the match would be the Mountain against Don Knotts. I I can't hang with this guy. This this, this is just a lot of muscle going on and a lot of training in that. Uh, And I have to give him credit. And he's got the name recognition. So I'm sure people are going to tune into this.
2: I think we need to be a little bit worried, Evan, about uh, Big Bar Sports Presents. I, I like <laughs> Dale Earnhardt Jr. versus Jeff Gordon. I sense a side hustle coming. I'm just saying, you know, you heard it here first.
1: Hmm. I was going to say, with the Bloomberg Business of Sports launches its event series, uh, we're going to start <laughs> off with Dale Earnhardt Jr. versus Jeff Gordon at an empty Talladega. I love it.
0: Today we are speaking with Jamie Regal, CEO of Formula E, the all-electric motor championship. Jamie, welcome to the Bloomberg Business Business of Sports yeah. Oh, thanks very much for having me.
1: Jamie, you took the job in September, you know, a few months onto the job. The biggest sports business story of, of the last few decades, at the very least, kicks in. I take it in your interview, uh, how are you going to deal with the pandemic wasn't one of the questions that they were asking you.
3: No, that one did not come up. Uh, there was a lot of discussion around the opportunity around Formula E, Around our potential and how we might grow the business, but no, uh, I don't think anyone could have possibly imagined the scenario we find ourselves in now. And uh, we've certainly been navigating a crash course in crisis management over the last six months. So it's been uh, it's been an exciting trial.
2: So, Jamie, give us the state of play. What's the decision tree that you're facing at this point? No races, uh, I believe, in the near term. Uh, You've had a couple races canceled, but you're still hoping to get a couple in before the end of the season. Help us understand where you are.
3: Well, look, I mean, we've been managing uh, and uh, dealing with the coronavirus crisis since January, actually. So we postponed our first race, which was our Sanya race in uh, Hainan province in China, on February 2nd. And so uh, as a global business, we've been in uh, dealing with this for quite some time. And then in March, we effectively put our season on pause uh, because our next races were Rome, Paris, Seoul, and Jakarta. Um, and now we've extended that because our next races were, were in Berlin, uh, New York, and London. And New York and London uh, both venues have been taken over by uh, the local authorities as emergency hospitals for uh, COVID-19. So uh, very much the schedule has been disrupted. Um, but, you know, clearly we're we're part of something much bigger than sport right now. And the health and safety of our stakeholders is what's most important. But, of course, we're working very hard on trying to identify uh, alternatives to continue the calendar. And we'll look to do that uh, later this summer. Uh, we've effectively extended what would be the natural end of our season, which would have been July into September, to try to create some space in the calendar. And, you know, we we sit here today in May uh, hopeful and optimistic that we'll be able to get some events off in
0: August and September. Jamie, it's a shame. Formula E was picking up in popularity, and uh, it was gaining a foothold, and then everything came to a grinding halt. The popularity of the sport, can you explain that to the listeners on what made this sport special?
3: Well, Formula E is uh, the fusion of motorsport, which is all about technology and innovation and passion and climate change, and specifically the shift to electric vehicles. So we exist to accelerate the adoption of electric vehicles, and we're leveraging the power of sport to tell that story. And I think what our fans really buy into is we've got an exciting core proposition with some great brands, uh, some of the biggest car manufacturers in the world, who are leveraging our platform to prove their technology and also tell a marketing story, um, and it's fundamentally uh, a very competitive championship with, with some of the best drivers in the world and some of the best teams. And you know, fans buy into that that excitement and you know, ultimately the uncertainty of the outcome, which is a uh, which is a core pillar for Formula E.
1: Jamie, to go back to the the kind of the slowdown of the season for a second, you know, we've been talking on this show. Uh, to a number of, you know, different sports stakeholders, you know. And and when you get a sense of of kind of where they make their money, you also get a sense for kind of the ideal way to maybe tailor their sport uh, to to fit this with this weird new potential reality. Can you give us a sense of of, of kind of the revenue pie for you guys? Is it, you know, do you make most of your money from sponsorships? Is it media rights? Is it ticket sales? And kind of how do you think about, you know, where those buckets are relative to what Formula E might look like, you know, maybe in a few months, if you can get it off the ground again this season?
3: So Formula E uh, has a very similar business model to other sports properties in that we have ticketing income, media, revenue, and sponsorship income. I think we're we're relatively fortunate in the current crisis is we're less dependent on ticketing and attendance income and media rights, um, and fairly strong on sponsorship. And our sponsorship partners have bought into Formula E, a platform for innovation, platform to tell stories around sustainability. And so, actually, our business model in the current environment is relatively protected. Because we don't have huge TV rights, Um, the impact on our business is actually uh, not as severe as it is for some other sports properties. And
2: so as you look at that, one of the clear things that comes up is this question of everybody's safety, including the the drivers and all the teams. How does that element change as you think about sort of modeling this out uh, in terms of setting up something where the drivers feel comfortable, especially, and this is something we hear from a lot of other uh, international sports, because you're dealing with a, a global population of athletes in many ways.
3: That's right. I mean, our, our business, uh, one of the, the virtues of it, we believe, is, is is global nature. The teams are based in, in Germany, in the U.K., in France, in China, uh, in India, and then we have drivers from all over the world. And, and that's one of the things I think our our fans uh, and our commercial partners buy into. Uh, but as you say, that, that presents a series of challenges as we look to get back to racing. So I, w- I would put it into... Uh, phases As we look to complete season six, we've completed five of our 14 races. Clearly, those events are going to be uh, behind closed doors with significant restrictions in terms of human interaction, social distancing, and so on and so forth. And for those of you who aren't as familiar with motorsport, clearly the teams are interacting in a very intimate way in the uh, in the garages. So we're going to have to uh, set up some policies to make sure that, that they're tested and so on and so forth. Starting later this year, you know, there we're going to have to look at separating fans within the um, data. Uh, we've got something called the Allianz Village, which is effectively, you know, a carnival area where the fans can congregate. Again, we're going to have to look at how we create more space within those environments to ensure it's, it's safe and the drivers want to attend and the, um, and the fans want to attend.
0: For people not familiar with Formula E, some of the big names in the sport, Antonio Felix da Costa, Mitch Evans, Alexander Sims, Maximilian Gunther, those are names, they're not household names, but they're trying to gain traction. What will it take for these drivers, and all the drivers on the circuit for that matter, uh, to come to uh, name recognition like Lewis Hamilton, who's in F1, or, or other names like that?
3: Formula really E has some a core ingredient that I think is uh, a marker for all successful sports, and that the racing is unpredictable. Uh, the outcome is unpredictable. And if you have that as an underlying pillar, and then you overlay uh, the teams and the brands and the manufacturers that we have and then the drivers in those cars, there are very few seats in motorsport generally, whether that's NASCAR, IndyCar, Formula One, or of course, Uh, Formula E. So, these guys are top, top athletes. Uh, It's been our job as a championship to create the framework that allows them to be successful, and and we feel like we have some ingredients. As I said before, uh, the inherent level of competitiveness. We're global. We have to build ourselves as a media property to attract fans, and so we need to increase our distribution channels. If we do all that and the racing is exciting, the fans will come, and I think what we've seen in the last... uh, uh, six months before our season was put on pause. You know, we had over 45,000 people at our race in Mexico City. We had over 25,000 people at our race in Santiago in, in January. And so the level of interest is clearly there. Um, and to really break through as a global sport to make these guys global superstars, which uh, I personally believe they deserve to be, you know, we have to build up that media product and, and make it a point of viewing and make make sure the fans are tuning in and we can reach out. And ultimately we need for that is to be able to get
1: back on track. Jamie, we've seen a number of different racing circuits, certainly NASCAR, F1, you guys all looking at, you know, in this time where races aren't happening, uh, virtual racing, iRacing events, eSports. Can you give us a sense of, of what you guys have done in that space and, and maybe how the results you've seen so far and how it's maybe kept your fans and your drivers uh, engaged at a time when, when they aren't on normal tracks?
3: Absolutely. Well, when we put the season on pause in uh, early March, we immediately said we had to do something to be able to uh, fill the gap from a content perspective and to try to deliver uh, engagement to our fans and to support our teams and commercial partners because we knew we were going to be facing a bit of a dry spell here. Um, we were not the first ones to launch. Uh, a number of other initiatives came out quickly. And so what we said is let's regroup and make sure we really have a differentiated product. And we partnered with UNICEF actually first and foremost. So the idea was really to use uh, the esports platform as a fundraising tool. Um, we also set it up as a race series. So an eight week series uh, with appointment viewing, uh, 330 UK time uh, for uh, eight Saturdays in a row. And then from a format perspective, Uh, We brought in all of our teams and all of our drivers. We think we're the only uh, championships that's doing that. And then within the broadcast, uh, we also have what we call the challenge grid, which is uh, gamers and celebrities um, and uh, a number of other influencers. And the idea is basically to package that as a product with all of the uh, revenue we generate, uh, going to support the uh, COVID crisis initiative with Unicef. And it's really been well-received. I mean, the, the level of support from the teams and the drivers, uh, we've been delighted. And we've seen them, a number of them launched on Twitch and other uh, digital platforms to kind of showcase what they're up to. Uh, we sent all of our drivers the same rigs so that we would make sure that it was a, a fair competition. And we've seen a really good uh, good reception in terms of the viewership. Uh, we've got a mix of distribution on uh, some – Digital platforms like YouTube and, and Twitch and Facebook, and then also our traditional broadcasters are, are taking the feed as well. So, for example, in the United States, uh, we were actually on Fox Fox Sports One, um, and interestingly, the audience uh, was about 40-50% of what we get for for a live race. So, actually, uh, it shows that there's there's a gap and there's a demand. Um, and so, for us, it's, it's fantastic, and in, in certainly in the U.S. market, to get that that level of incremental exposure.
2: Well, Jamie, to that point, I mean, one of the things that we keep hearing from people is they're learning a lot about their audience. They're learning a lot about their athletes. And so I do wonder, what do you take from this moment? Do you say, huh, we hadn't thought about doing that before. And I wonder if it plays into exactly what you were just talking about, that we're going to keep doing this even when we get back to live racing. That could be a new revenue stream or that could be a new line of business to some extent.
3: Well, that's right. I mean, I think all sports properties are looking at ways to engage a younger, more digital audience. Uh, Formula E, that's one of our differentiators generally is we have a, an audience that's skewed younger. Uh, it's more urban. Um, so we're somewhat fortunate in that regard and we think our, our audience lends itself to that. I would say from our, our, uh, point of differentiation, the idea of having a parallel track race with the challenge grid with influencers, but then also a real race, if you will, uh, amongst all the, uh, the teams and the drivers, that was a point of differentiation. And so, as we think about going back to a normal race, how do we attract an audience that is perhaps beyond the traditional motorsport audience uh, who might naturally have affinity for Formula E, uh, who might appeal to, uh, who, excuse me, who might be attracted to uh, more of a video game activity or uh, some of the influencers we've brought in? How can we embed that? experience into the live product on the race weekend uh, perhaps you know filling in uh, throughout the day in terms of an alternative uh, piece of content adjacent to the uh, real race
0: I don't know if anybody has had a chance and I want to explain this to the audience to see a formula e race the cars are so quiet that the loudest thing uh, you hear on the cars uh, is the tire squeal when they're going through the turn which brings me to the next point is that when a car comes into the pits, and they need to uh, have another car. Just go ahead and change the other car because the obviously the the charging the battery is goes down low. The technology you guys have. Will we see it one day where the the motor can go farther and maybe one day extend over into the passenger car?
3: Well, absolutely. I mean, Formula E is, is different among sports in the sense that we were founded specifically to help accelerate the adoption of electric vehicles. Right? It was really meant as a technology-proving ground and a marketing showcase uh, for the potential electric vehicles. The first generation was really about proving that these cars can go fast and uh, there can be exciting racing. We're on our second generation now where the battery range is much longer, so the uh, drivers no longer have a pit stop to change cars. Uh, The battery lasts the full race and the energy management element, meaning uh, how quickly they use their energy and therefore how fast they can go throughout the race, is a key differentiator on the skill. Uh, As you think about inhibitors to adopting an electric vehicle, one of the main concerns people have is is range, right? How far will uh, the battery last? And so as we look to uh, next season and the season after the development of the car, there's an enormous amount of R&D that goes into, one, the battery technology to uh, what's called the inverter, effectively converting the energy uh, to the powertrain, uh, and the efficiency through software that uh, OEMs and manufacturers can drive. And so it is very relevant to uh, you and I buying a car because it gives us a sense, of, as our technology develops in the races, of what's going to come on the road, perhaps not next year, but in three, four, five years' time, and all of our manufacturers are seeing that, that clear link.
1: And Jamie, you've worked in a number of different sports organizations. I think maybe most notably, you know, you ran the, the partnerships and business operations for Manchester United for a while, were part of their kind of expansion into Asia, which, which went very well for the club. I'm curious, you know, given your extensive history in other sports, how much of your job now is kind of specific to the, the racing industry and how much is stuff that you're like, oh, yeah, I saw this before. This is just the same thing with a different sport, you know, that I was doing in soccer or in American football.
3: The business models among sports are very similar. Uh, As we discussed before, there's there's media rights, there's the attendance and driving fan engagement and sponsorship, I mean, those are generally the three big buckets. And so there's a significant amount of pattern recognition in terms of how you go to market, how you position uh, the property, how we tell stories to consumers, and then ultimately how we commercialize. That having been said, um, each sport has its own relationships, its own politics, um, its own motivations. And uh, the fan bases are different in terms of their expectations. Um, Clearly, motorsport uh, is more global. Uh, We have more races around the world. We're delivering events around the world. It's inherently premium. And the stakeholders we have are some of the biggest car companies in the world who are there to um, espouse the sport and to grow uh, Formula E as a, as a sporting and entertainment brand, but they're also in it because they want to develop technology for their electric vehicle uh, platforms, and so there's just a different set of motivations and um, challenges that that presents. So there's a degree of pa- uh, pattern recognition, but as with uh, each new environment you enter, you, you bring a little bit with you, but you have to be pretty nimble and look to learn as you uh, as you go.
2: Well, Jamie, speaking of new environments, all of you are in the same new environment when it comes to figuring out how to move forward in the short term and the midterm. I do wonder, as you look back to the premiership and you look back to the NFL – how are they doing so far in your estimation as an alum of those groups and those organizations? How would you rate them in terms of their planning? Obviously, you know, you're know you seeing it from a little bit of a distance, but I'm guessing you're still talking to, to some of your friends there.
3: Well, look, I would say there's an enormous amount of solidarity amongst the business people and the executives uh, within the sports industry. And the reality is none of us have uh, a map or a set of guideposts for the situation we find ourselves in. Uh, This is truly, uh, hopefully, once in a career. And so what's great is there's a degree of camaraderie and uh, willingness to share and learn. And so I have an enormous amount of respect for what all of the other uh, folks in in my shoes are trying to navigate through at the moment, and we lean on each other for advice. You know, each each, uh, team, each league, has to figure out what's right for its stakeholders, um, you know, first and foremost, the, the cities and the fans and the uh, players and the teams and the referees, all of the stakeholders who need to come together and feel comfortable that we're going to be able to put on our events in a safe manner. You know, ultimately that's the guiding principle. And so we'll all navigate through that together. Clearly, as we sit here anticipating racing in August, we're looking at, for example, in Germany, the Bundesliga is looking at returning to games sometime this month, and we're looking at that very closely in terms of the approach and the policies that they're taking. We're working with our governing body, the FIA. We're working with the WHO, the World Health Organization, to try to figure out uh, what the right policies and procedures uh, would make sense to be able to put on an event. And so uh, I won't be giving any grades we're all learning from each other and, and hopefully we can all get back to uh, what, what, what fans love, which is the passion and engagement that sports delivers.
1: Jamie, you spoke earlier a bit about how you know part of Formula E's mission is kind of to advance the awareness and, and interest in electric cars and more broadly climate change. Certainly this pandemic is not maybe not directly a, a climate change item, but you know, a lot of people are saying that this can be kind of a call to action for people to think more broadly about the ways in which our environment and our climate is changing. I'm curious if you agree with that, if you kind of maybe sense an opportunity for kind of everybody that's in, you know, this, the, the front line of this, uh, of trying to talk about these topics that, that maybe, you know, on the back end of the, the, the coronavirus pandemic, there may be more willingness or more openness or more conversation about some of the topics that you're trying to advance right now.
3: Well, we believe that the trends that we are part of, meaning, you know, the awareness around climate change and uh, electric vehicles' potential uh, contribution to addressing those challenges, you know, those were true before coronavirus and they will be true uh, when we come out of the crisis. But as you point out, um, what is happening now is we have a massive experiment in humanity effectively staying at home. We have 2.5, three, 3 billion people who are no longer uh, going to work, moving about the, uh, their normal day, daily lives. And what we've seen as a consequence of that is a massive reduction in air pollution in a very short period of time. And so that clearly, in our mind, provides uh, a very real test case of the impact of human activity on uh, pollution and emission levels, which we think helps our case. Um, and then the second thing is from a, a consciousness perspective, and this is maybe a, a little more philosophical or abstract, people are, are clearly spending a lot more time uh, at home uh, with their friends, excuse me, or with their f- friends, with their families, or with themselves, uh, contemplating humanity's place in the world. And so in my mind, the consciousness that comes from that, you know, perhaps will be to our benefit. That being said, um, you know it would be churlish to, to, to say that you know somehow we're going to benefit from this crisis. I mean, clearly it's it's very uh, it's very serious. Um, but we do believe that it, um, you know some of the evidence points will uh, perhaps give us some arguments to uh, to underpin the trends that you know we believe we're already benefiting from.
0: Jamie Regal, CEO of Formula E. Thank you so much for taking the time out and talking with us. And I enjoy it all the time talking racing. Thank you, sir. Oh, thank you, gentlemen, very much. It was my pleasure to uh, be with you. Really honored to, uh, to be on the show.
2: So, guys, what really jumped out at me was, you know, here's a guy. We caught up with him in quarantine in Hong Kong. I mean this is a global sport in many ways. And there are very few executives that I think we're dealing with who are going to have to deal with this so comprehensively. And by the way, it's a new league. And Michael, as you pointed out, it was really sort of on the upswing and the popularity isn't going away. And maybe the last point is he's got sort of a nice tailwind behind him going into this of uh, this whole e revolution.
0: Yeah, I I it's the thing I picked up also is that this this sport was popular. I could sit down in an early morning and I'm and this is live and I'm looking at this it is awesome to watch. And I love what he said about the the motor the electric motor itself about how the progress is showing up more in passenger cars and that's what Motorsports is all about. Doesn't make a difference whether it's the Formula E League, whether it's NASCAR, Indy. All those innovations have found a way into the passenger car. Heck, even the rearview mirror was first used at Indianapolis way back in 1911 or 12, whatever. So it shows you how all the technology comes to us today.
1: My first takeaway is that the rear view mirror originally came from uh, from from from, <laughs> from motorsports uh,
2: but seriously, I, I feel I, like I, we re- buried the lead in this whole interview <laughs> right there.
1: Uh, I did. T- I've been really interested over the past few weeks to hear from folks within the sports world about the things that they're doing to try to be innovative now that may become permanent fixtures on their league for their team. Whenever you know we re- return back to whatever normal looks like, and you heard Jamie talk about some of the the i racing that they that they're, they're doing right now, um, their their esports events. You know when they're on Fox Sports One in the U.S., he said forty to fifty percent of the viewership that they were getting for a traditional Race. Now, obviously, those things are not going to replace the live uh, racing events. But if there's a property that they can do kind of between the margins in their downtime with drivers, with celebrities, with a charity like UNICEF, if they can roll all that up into a product that's going to get 50% of the viewership that their main main thing does, that's a that's a valuable thing to have. And, and, and he said, you know, th- those are things that may find their way into Formula E next year, and the year after, and the year after that. So I do think that you know when we get on the back end of this pandemic, we're going to be able to look back at a lot of the things these leagues are doing now mm-hmm. and say, oh, that, that came about because there was no racing and they did a partnership with UNICEF and they did this and it worked. So, you know, definitely interested to hear him talking about, you know, the things they're learning now that will be inf- influential in their future.
0: My goal is if you want to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since i a kid. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg business of sports the number of the week time now for the number of the week hello jason and welcome to this segment and it's something (laughs) that (laughs) yeah i'll give you a hint this is something that's very timely is 347
1: is that dollars or just 347
0: this is just 347 this is very timely
1: no, I know this one. This is the number of days it's been since there's been live sports in the
0: U.S. It, well, <laughs> close. <laughs> <laughs> or does yeah, it just it, feel that way? It feel it. It
2: definitely feels that way. 347. I mean, it, could it be like how many people are actually going to be at a pro football game when it actually kicks off in the fall? Ooh.
0: You know what? You're on. Good you're guess. on track. You're on track when you said pro football. 347.
1: I don't know. You got to tell us.
0: I got to pay homage to the great Don Shula. Ah, and, nice. Who just passed uh, several days ago, winningest in the NFL, 347 victories with the Baltimore Colts and, of course, the Miami Dolphins, who had the perfect 17-0 and season in the 1972 season. Bill Belichick is the active coach right now with 304 victories in 25 seasons and still going strong so let's see if belichick can catch shula who was great he died at age 90 You've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week at the same time, plus online wherever you get your podcast. You can catch those Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm Michael Barr on Twitter at Big Barr Sports,
2: and I'm Jason Kelly. You can find me on Twitter at Jason Kelly News,
1: and I'm Eben Novi Williams. You can follow me on Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. Tune in again next week when we continue to speak with the biggest and brightest in the sports business world.
0: You are listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world.